The idea behind Common Goal was let's create a movement within the industry and let this movement be run and led by the protagonists, actually by the footballers. And let's make it accessible for everybody. So we came up with the 1%. So let every euro that is generated thanks to commercializing the game, let it put one cent into a collective impact fund, like 1%. And let's start with the players putting 1% of their earnings into that fund. And then we were very lucky to to, to meet um, the right guy at the right time, uh, who was Juan Mata, who like represented our value system from A to Z as individual, both as a person as, as well as a, as a football player. And we co-founded Common Goal finally with him. And he was also the first to commit like the 1% of his earnings to, to that fund. In part two, we discussed the incubation of Common Goal leaving aside the corporate social responsibility model, believing that it would never create sustainable and systemic impact, Jürgen and his team set up Common Goal, a movement where players commit 1% of their earnings to Common Goal's central fund, and then together they allocate the fund to high-impact social organisations that harness the power of football to advance the United Nations' global goals. Beginning with Juan Mata from Manchester United in Spain, Common Goal now has over 150 players, including Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, Giorgio Cellini from Italy, Matt Hummels from Germany, and even Liverpool manager Jürgen Klopp. Jürgen explains the vision for and the potential impact Common Goal can have and its value to the business of football. Based on an ambition to build a culture where a better person is a better player, and that every person's contribution counts, Common Goal is now being adopted by younger players, managers, clubs, businesses, and even supporters. Jürgen also discusses the organization's role in supporting the UN's global goals and using football to galvanize the global population around these goals. Jürgen also answers all our quickfire questions. There's a lot to take out of this episode. The importance of avoiding the easy option, the value of collective responsibility, the power of teamwork, and being prepared to take risks and trusting in your gut and imagination. I hope you enjoy the wit, wisdom and social impact of Jürgen Griesbeck. Okay, well, that's, a, that's a nice point at which to discuss where, when you spotted that, that gap between the two, let's say the hierarchical nature of organisations running football and the increasing business of football and the on-the-ground, say, democratic power of the, of, the, of the sport to create opportunity for, for disadvantaged youth. When was it? I, I mean, I, I heard from when we interviewed Ben that you were at the World Cup, another World Cup in 2016, uh, 14, 2014, yeah. sorry, in Rio and witnessing the... Which also the, was won by the Germans, by the way. <laughs> well, <laughs> just before we do move on to there, I am just going to say, I was actually... <laughs> I was in... Um, uh, I believe it was in, it was Dusseldorf in 2006 with one of my good friends, uh, Tobias uh, de Graaf, and we travelled to watch the uh, Italian-German semi-final. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was sitting on the corner, um, near the corner flag, watching those two Italian goals going. So I think uh, there were uh, certain uh, World yeah. Cups that weren't won by the Germans. No, no, no. <laughs> that, that, although that was probably the, the most beautiful World Cup I have witnessed at 2006, I think. Wonderful, uh, yeah. It was a gr- some great games. Yeah, I think it was won by the wrong team. Not saying that Germany should have won it, but but Italy was just the wrong team to win it. But uh, that's... That's another story, especially because now I, I've got to know. I disagree. I disagree. 
Yeah, it wasn't won by beauty, let's say. It was it was won in in some way. <laughs> it was a lively final. <laughs> so you have to do what you have to do, you know? It's a game. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, so back to 2014 and the World Cup there and what you witnessed on the ground in terms of just the disparity and the gulf yep. between what, how people were living and, and the youth with displaying amazing skills on beaches and the favelas and what you were actually witnessing in mm. terms of the, the wealth of the organizations running football. I mean, like, since we, we had started actually with Street Football World and I have to give that credit to FIFA, collaborating with FIFA since 2005-ish, yeah, before the World Cup in Germany. And, and at that time, I thought it was a, a really like courageous step for FIFA to do that, to work with a nobody organization like Street Football World. Nobody knew about nobody. It was just recently created, etc. And walk out of like a safe environment of collaborating with UNICEF or SOS Children Villages, which is very safe, like brand-wise, or was at the time and to walk into a partnership with Street Football World um, where there was no brand value attached like to that partnership. So that's real credit to, to FIFA. And what I'm, I'm saying that because then since 2006, 2010, we worked on the legacy, like the social legacy of the World Cups, like supporting FIFA. In 2006, it was like a testing the friendship kind of thing, like where FIFA put a little money to it, observed how it would work out. And then afterwards, we entered like a more solid partnership. We did in Berlin-Kreuzberg, we did like a like a backyard kind of, we built a backyard kind out of scaffolding stadium. And we did like a street football world festival there, which was quite nice and it worked out really well. And in 2010, we it became part, official part of the World Cup. So there was plus one stadium which was like the street, it, then it turned into Football for, for Hope Festival because it was becoming part of the World Cup. And it was like all same branding as the World Cup, etc. And the kids that were coming, like they didn't feel like Cristiano Ronaldo, but, but it was like a similar treat to them. And they, they really were celebrated for what they had achieved back in their communities. Around that, we managed to, uh, to do a real solid program which was called 20 centers by 2010 so we built thanks to the world cup in south africa um, we took responsibility of building 20 community community centers across africa in places where we had network members work already so it was an upgrading of of the work environment of these organizations and until today i think there hasn't been anything close to that to, to what we we're able to achieve with that. So there's lots of success story out of that. But then in 2014, it was scaled back completely. There was no social legacy investment of, of FIFA beyond like scratching the surface here and there. So we did the festival, but there were no people because it was somewhere where no be- people would, would ever travel to. So there, there, there was, it was like the, the festival did happen, but it wasn't a festival. So that was like when we thought, okay, this is not the way we won't achieve it this way. We won't make like this part of football, part of, uh, of football's DNA. If we just continue like this CSR trend. So then we started to think, how could we possibly achieve it? Um, we as an NGO telling football, like 
you're maximizing profit, you're growing two-digit every year, you should give something away. It's not the right way. And we don't want to be this kind of, of, of begging instance. So the idea behind Common Goal was, okay, let's create a movement within the industry and let's this move, let this movement be run and led by the protagonists, actually by the footballers. And let's make it accessible for everybody. So we came up with the 1%. So let everybody, like every euro that is generated thanks to commercializing the game, let it put one cent into a collective impact fund, like 1%. And let's start with the players putting 1% of their earnings into that fund. And then we were very lucky to, to, to meet um, the right guy at the right time, uh, who was Juan Mata, who like represented that like our value system from A to Z, like um, as individual, both as a person as as well as a as a football player. And we co-founded Common Goal finally with him, and he was also the first to commit like the one percent of his earnings to to that fund. And this now, over the past two and a half years, has grown into. Um, I think today we announced um, member 154 or 155, Laura Rafferty from Brighton, actually, of professional footballers who have who have joined the movement. Among them, like high profile, you would call them, both from the male and the female game, like Megan Rapinoe or Alex Morgan or or Jurgen Klopp as a coach or Mats Hummels of of the uh, in Germany or Giorgio Chiellini in Italy, but also like second, third division players and many of the female players that play Champions League or play their national teams but don't earn any any significant money like out of the game. So there's a whole spectrum of different professionals who have joined. And even beyond that, like football journalists or football agents or like other other and stakeholders clubs. of and and entire clubs who have embedded the one percent in their throughout their contracting and in their stadium revenues, etc. So it it has gotten certain traction. And what's most important to us, it's inspiring people. Like it's inspiring the imagination that change is actually possible. We're far from making it a standard, which is our ambition with Common Goal, so that every euro generated thanks to commercializing the game would translate into a cent in the impact fund. But we're on our way. Mm-hmm. What role do you think uh, that fan power has to encourage or to coerce players and managers and even sponsors to get behind this? Yeah, there's. I don't know if there's a pre and post COVID answer to that. I'm not sure <laughs> um, yet. But let's let's stay with pre because we don't know yet post. I think there was this two sided sword. If that's an expression in English, I'm not sure where there's this huge loyalty of fans to the game, which would them just ignore everything that's bad in the game because they just want to live their love um, for the game and that's expressed by a player or it's expressed by a club. It's normally not expressed by the football institutions. So that's obviously cool, but at the same time, it doesn't make it necessarily easy to mobilize a fan base towards changing anything because in essence they love how it is like the fans love the game how it is performed they want their team to to win the titles and all these kind of things 
So everybody who feels slightly different to that w- wouldn't necessarily be a, one of the, this fan base. So I'm not sure. On the other side, like or another perspective to it is some of the players that have been joining Common Goal have told us that one of their motivations is actually to to have their fans understand that before being a footballer, they're people. And they want to connect with the fans or their followers as people, with with their feelings, with what's important in their life, and and also to to sort of put the performance on the pitch into context. So not being reduced to somebody who needs to produce a result on the pitch. And if you don't do it, then you're judged on that. You're like you you fall in the ranking. But if you if, if you were a, a person I relate to. And beyond that, you're also a football player in the team I'm following. It becomes a different equation. And that's, that's actually a very conscious, apparently a very conscious decision in some of the players, maybe also to put some pressure away from them having to perform on the highest level all the time. And also, like once I went with Juan Mata to, to UEFA and we were entering this door, and I've, I had been there relatively often because we were working with a foundation, etc., but he, it was his first time there. So the first time a professional footballer after 15 years of career, like say 12 years of adult career, first time he was in touch with an institution that's regulating his profession. So there was all these trophies, like of all the different UEFA-led championships. And then we just walked one by one and he had won all of them. He had received all of these trophies. But never interacted. As a national team player, as a club team player, as a youth player, etc. But never related to who is regulating the game. So there's different different ways of looking at it. And I think well, the ambition with Common Goal is to just make it one. Like to, to make football be that in essence. And I think it will it will revert back in the value of football. Because at the end of the day, what what it would do is it would make football more resilient because it would, and maybe post-COVID now, it's a different level of relevance to people if you connect on that level. And then people get through a phase where, you, where there is no football in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's not just entertainment on a screen or entertainment in a stadium. It's part of my life. You're already adding value to my life. And I think that is um, where something like Common Goal, if that was like associated inseparably of what football is about, I think it would it would change the whole business um, with a very minimal decision like making. It wouldn't change anything of the economics of football. I would even say, and, and it would be the opposite of it. It would add value to it. I think it would make it grow bigger. What do you think is um, inhibiting its accelerated growth? What are the barriers to... System failure, I think. I think the systems are built in a way that it isn't... It is like a an institution like FIFA or UEFA. Even if, if there is a president who wants to do things in a different way, I think the system itself is, is an inhibition of... of to, to make this happen. Like there's people who are there for their own reasons and who have had to go through and let's call it an educational process within the system to get where they are. And this builds like 
a level of of stagnation. Like there, there's nothing you can't move too far from where you are because there's somebody else who is keeping you where you are in order to make the whole thing work for everybody who is involved in it. But it doesn't work necessarily for those who are not involved in it, which is obviously the majority. Mm -hmm. With um, just in terms of what you were explaining, the model and how the impact fund then you. Presumably, am I correct in saying that that impact fund is distributed using the Street Football World Network to the organizations in there? That's the place where we started because for two reasons. One, it is very little money. Although there's 150 footballers involved and other stakeholders who are contributing at least 1% of their earnings, all in all, we haven't, it, that doesn't um, sum up to more than like, 2 million roundabout in the two and a half years, which is a sizable number, but at the same time, it's not a game changer. If I had wanted to, to fundraise 2 million, there was an easier way to, to fundraise 2 million than, than through this way. The, the, the whole game-changing ambition is to make it a standard. Only then, money-wise, it makes a difference or it will make a difference. Right now, the most important thing is leadership and inspiration of those who are joining the movement. So, so I think that's, that's the most important. The other side of why the football, the Street Football World Network members, um, because we know them. So we know what 5,000 euros do to this organization or the other organization. Or if there's a footballer who would want to, su to support organization A and he happens to be a well-paid top-tier footballer, we are in a position to tell him, hey, this is too much for this organization right now. Yeah. So may maybe split it in, in three or, or something like that. Or, or we can make, like we can group 10, 15 lower earning footballers to make a, a significant contribution to an organization. So we know it. So not really, not much money really. And knowing the organizations and being able to actually make a promise to the footballers who donate their resources. And um, this is how it works right now. But the ambition, obviously, towards standardization is also decentralization. So we cannot control this over, over time. So next steps will be to work together with player foundations, club foundations, etc., and others who deliver the impact. And we just need to agree on, on an understanding on how quality looks like and how impact is, is being measured and reported back. But then we don't need to control everything. Um, we actually cannot control everything if we want to maximize impact. Just one observation. Real systemic change obviously doesn't happen overnight. And you, because you've built this, this global network of uh, organizations within the street football world network, presumably they're, whilst you're advocating for players to commit and the organizations and sponsors and clubs to commit to 1%. There is presumably an opportunity to educate the youth who are coming through these organizations. You've got their a captive audience to educate them on the importance of the 1%. Because many of these kids that are on the, going through these organizations and working with them and uh, come from the communities where they're, they're likely to end up as professional football players. So is there a, is there a two-channel approach? So working with the, the top tier while working on the ground in the communities to educate the children as to how they should be thinking about success and social impact when they, if, they, if they make it. Yeah, this is, this is spot on. So the club that has joined Common Goal, FC Norseland in Denmark, 
they are actually built on on 20 years of academic experience in which they follow the principle of a better person is a better player and they ended up buying that like a group of that the right right to dream is actually the name of of the academy that originated in Ghana in West Africa and at the point where they saw okay we we actually do produce quote unquote all these talents both in football and outside of football because whoever enters their academy is promised a professional career if that is by making it into professional football that's fine if they don't they actually are promised a university career so both both works but they they weren't able to to see like industry change happen based on what they worked uh, what they did as as an academy so they ended up fundraising f- to take ownership of a club so they selected North Yelland as the club they would want to buy and now they have the follow on step of the academy like in their own hands in this club and after only 4 years i think now that they bought this club they have the youngest squad all across europe and they are competing european competitions and they have like nine player like a cat nine, nine academy players in the starting 11 so so that's quite interesting model so it's i'm saying this to to say that it's totally true what you're saying this this is a, a way to go we just had a 16 year old and a 15 year old real madrid, madrid player joining common goal so they are starting to to recognize that this is something they they can also lead like their generation to um, to actually once they get into the professional game as an adult they they already carry this attitude in their dna they already know what it means to be a, a solid professional so that that does work quite well and and certainly obviously the the organizations we're working with with street football world there is lots of talent but i think it's not there's not much yet not much emphasis put in like helping develop footballing talent football is a pure tool to work with and work with the with the excitement around it and and the motivation of of of, of these youth to actually continue in a process of behavior change at the end of the day but but not much emphasis has yet been put into developing actually the footballing talent as such i just want to get your perspective on on the global goals and the sdgs and where street football world and common goals sits within that broader uh, 2030 goals and yeah the obviously that we we know that this uh, the generation of youth today purpose and social impact is core to their decision making and brands that they buy how are you embracing those those goals we are actually embracing them um first of all because these are the only goals we have <laughs> there is no other goals and the creation or the development of of these goals are based probably on the biggest global collective consultation we have had back in 2015 so so these are like the two reasons why we embrace um the the global goals obviously that we are 5 years into it and and we're far away from meeting them and and being on track and and actually the clock is ticking of like meeting milestones where things get irreversible, especially like in regards to climate. But I think now translating that to football and coming back to to football not having a vision, we're actually 
we believe that we have a vision for football. We're now putting everything in, into making this an impact plan for the next 10 years with inviting every stakeholder in and around football to be part of it. That's what we have, plus extensions. We're, we're planning off street football, world, common goal, etc. And seeing that on the one side, the goals are not being met and on the other side, football having a potential that's still to be unlocked. What we believe is that the goals need an enabling force that would act at the scale of the challenges the goals want to tackle. And football could be this enabling force. So what, what happened like in Medellin at the very beginning in a very, like, very local context, at the end of the day, what I believe the world needs to learn is what's at the essence of football, which is team play. So we need to understand that we're sitting in the same boat, we're rowing together in the same direction, and we want to hit the same goal. And football can help do that. And at the same time, football is probably the only language that's speaking to more than half of the global population in some shape or form and has more than half of the global population like open their hearts toward. And that is a unique position. You just need to have a vision and align that vision with the goals that are set by the global goals. I think there is some magic in there. It's very exciting. <laughs> and obviously everything's different post-COVID and now and what we're facing. And we have 100 years of World Cup in 2030. So if we want to celebrate really a World Cup in 2030, we need to have football unlock its potential to contribute to the global goals. Um, if not, I'd rather not want to celebrate a uh-huh. 100 years of World Cup in 2030. Yeah. Has the location been assigned yet? No. No. Probably we end up bidding for it. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, doubt, doubt it's going to be in Scotland. Um, okay. okay. No, note taken. Right. Okay. Just to wrap up on that then. So, what steps can you take with your organization and your influence to, to drive that narrative forward to put football at the center of bringing together people around collective responsibility for uh, the goals? And let's face it, I don't believe it's just individuals. I think it's corporations have to sort of come together as well yeah. and step up and because they're probably more responsible than any individual action that we can take. Yeah, I think it's not... Um, I had this conversation like many times during the lockdown here with my daughter who who is actually specializing in sustainability. And we were talking about this a lot because, and we ended up saying it's, it's not either or it's like all of it. It's like every individual counts, every individual in his and her profession counts in whatever environment you, you move yourself in counts. If you're a professional footballer or your followership is five people in your family, it doesn't matter. We all need to put what we can into this to, to make it work. And obviously then back to your statement that there are levers, like cooperation are, are levers, our um, public policy is, is a lever and, and like systems are, are levers, but but at the end of the day, there's people in systems and there's also people who consume the products of the system or who, who mandate service to a representation within the system. And like there's, there's, at the end, it comes down to people. And 
if we just agreed that all of our decision making was based on people and planet at the core, and that would be like the the level of our accountability we would be asked to or forced to deliver. At the same time, we would understand that none of us can do it alone. So we need to work as a team and that we all have our positions on that field in order to end up scoring as a team. And we cannot all be messy, um, but we need a goalkeeper and we need a left defender and and one of us will be messy, but we can't all be the same. So we need to to be happy with the role and we can we can fulfill and to understand that contribution has a value. Contribution is a currency and it's not all about accumulation, but that there is an, a, a different value system that that can be created based on our imagination. It doesn't need any any more than that. I think if we put like things we already know that are to a certain degree very obvious, if we just put that together and and we're true to what we are saying and would look into the mirror every evening and say, hey, did I really do anything to do what I said I would do? If I'm... EU commissioner or member of parliament or CEO of a company or teacher in a school or parent at home, doesn't matter. Just look at the mirror and, and think about, did I do what I could for people on planet today? And if you're saying yes, then, then it's cool. And, it, and if you're not able to say yes, then maybe you need to change something. That's a, that's a great answer and, and a great model uh, for people to embrace and a way to approach collective responsibility um, in addressing the biggest crisis we face as a planet. So let's move on. Before we get to the quickfire questions, I just want you to just reflect on the role of curiosity and how creativity manifests itself in the, in the work you do. I mean, without, without curiosity, there's no exploration. Without exploration, there's no innovation. So I think it's just essential to, to everything. Um, maybe rather, rather than to be driven by, by the question of why, be driven by the question of why not. Probably, I don't know, something like that. Okay. What principles do you stand by? Good question. I would say honesty, probably at the core of it, and trust. Conscious about the disappointment it, that it might bring with it. I choose to trust in the good of people and build everything I do on that, knowing that it might disappoint at some points. What hard choices have you had to make that might be tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? Hmm. Going back to Germany. (laughs) (laughs) That that, that wasn't my dream. I actually wanted to stay in Colombia, but it was the right thing to do, to come back to Germany. There was a moment in, in our institutional development where where we reset everything. So after 10 years of street football world, we, we allowed ourselves to, um, to go back to a blank sheet and say, hey, if we were to invent street football world now, how would we do that? And obviously that was, that was putting at risk all of ourselves, like with our jobs and everything. But people would go through that painful process of um, putting like the, contribution of the organization to the good of people and planet before their own interests. 
and ended up actually for some of, of our group not continuing the journey with street football well so that was very painful but was probably the right thing to do okay yeah maybe those two where do you go to discover new ideas anywhere i mean it helps to uh, to walk the dog on the beach to go and run but at the end of the day anywhere i don't need to be necessarily uh, by myself that is sometimes is inspiring like just get the space but but then like be a careful listener and and i think inspiration is everywhere mm -hmm. okay obviously you're in a, a court what you do is solving big societal problems but what is the one problem worth solving our lack of capability to work as a team as as humanity we haven't cracked that one sometimes i'm saying that collaboration is the innovation of our times yeah it's a really good answer. It's interesting that because what you started off doing with conflict resolution is bringing people together to communicate, to collaborate, to create a better future individually and collectively. And that still seems to be at the DNA of what you do. So it's a, it's a great answer. What's a question that no one asks you that you wish they would? <laughs> Maybe something along the lines like, could you help me invest my fortune in something meaningful? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ideally sort of uh, Warren Buffett maybe or uh, <laughs> Jeff, <Yeah>. Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Somebody of that league, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, if you could return to one night, one day in history, where, when and, and what uh, to see who, and it can't be uh, Dusseldorf in 2006 to <laughs> reverse that uh, that, that wonderful was that Italian result. Or was that Dortmund? Dortmund, Dortmund. That was it. it was Dortmund? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. Dortmund. I think. Yeah. Maybe to a very early Bob Marley concert. Yeah. Well, we can see Mr. Marley behind you. Oh yeah, playing football actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> maybe another one. Probably, I, I would wish not to have been in Costa Rica when the war broke down. Like, and I, I would have wanted to be there. Yeah. Okay. Um, who has made you reevaluate yourself? My children. How old are they? They're now 23 and 25. Mm, they keep you on your toes. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay. And both, both, <laughs> both daughters. So, yeah, yeah, yeah they, definitely. They have been the biggest inspiration and, and the biggest force for, to make me reevaluate re myself all the time. We always ask our impossible question, what would your advice be to someone that's got a goal, a dream, a grand ambition, but has been told, forget it, that's impossible? Oh yeah, don't be scared. Take a risk. Trust your gut. Either build or be part of a community so don't feel alone. And keep people on planet at the core of, of, of your decision making and then not much can go wrong, I think. Okay, good advice. What's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, I don't like karaoke. <laughs> um, that would be like the one that inspires me most, but it's like linked to situations where I heard that song is Mi Vida Mi Vida de Mark Anthony. It's just so much energy in that song. Yeah, uh, I would probably go for that. During the lockdown, what is the best Netflix, Amazon, Apple series that you think someone should watch? I don't know if, if it's the best, but I finally took the time to watch it, which was Casa de Papel. Don't know that. What's that? 
Yeah, you, it's, it's interesting. Like I, I like the basic idea. Casa de Papel is that the place in, in this case in Spain. Money heist. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Okay. Have you seen that or have you heard yeah. about it? Okay, I've heard about. Yes. Okay. Spanish uh, name I think was not is not familiar to to us because in, yeah. here in the US it's called money heist. Yeah, yeah, I, I I recall that. The interesting thing I thought about that is like stealing money without stealing any but like anything from anybody like like just printing it by yourself I, I thought that was a nice idea and just a, a more of a dystopian thing i saw just recently was handmaid's tale and and i thought that was was an interesting one i mean if you if you get yourself into it it, it becomes interesting like the it's all about like a, a very religious right wingish sort of situation i thought it was interesting Scary, that one. Very scary. Oh, yeah. What book would you like us to offer the three listeners that submit the best comments in Instagram or in the on the website? One that probably the book, that I guess to like the autobiography of, of Nelson Mandela um, was one uh, I could recommend. Then um, obviously, Garcia Marquez, A Hundred Years of Loneliness. Is, um, Solitude, the, yeah. Solitude, mm. yeah. Okay. But a, a more a more recent one I just read through the um, during the lockdown was Tanehisi Coates Between the World and Me. Yeah, uh, I really like that, and and yeah, I think it's it's probably more more relevant than ever. Now we finished our interview with who should we interview next? But before I ask that question, given that you're German and given you've been going on about the World Cup, I've got to ask you if you had to pick one of these three players to put in your top starting lineup to represent Germany, but happened to come from a different country, which would it be? Ruud van Nistelrooy, Marco van Basten, or Johan Cruyff? Oh, they're all Dutch. <laughs> um, Johan Cruyff. Ah, yeah. Probably go along with that. Okay. Yeah, I think on any team, you can be German or, or Vietnamese or Argentine. I think everybody would would want to have Johan Cruyff on their team. And I think what you've got to do at some point is commit to when you hit your, let's say, thousandth um, member of Common Goal, you have to go on social media wearing the Dutch national football shirt. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> not a problem for me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> that's okay all right. then. All right. So um, final question, who should we interview next? Moya Dot would be an interesting person I would recommend. She was running for FIFA presidency against Sepp Blatter as the first female who ever ran for she herself. is She's Australian. She was like on the first female national team of Australia, the Matildas, like in the 70s or so. Well, I'm just going to wrap up and, and thank you for your generosity of time and your honesty and transparency with your... Um, great answers and to acknowledge you just for your drive your driven purpose and what you've been doing all your life and for clearly the impact you're having have had and are going to have on not just football but the broader global goals and just for your for your great vision and energy and for inspiration for to bring people together as you say to come together and collectively solve problems and keep up the good work it's amazing it's inspiring yeah, thanks very much. And thanks also for creating this space. I think it's um, it's important. Once you take the time, you you end up um, appreciating it. It's sometimes it's hard to actually carve out the time. Um, but we have to remind ourselves that 
that it's worth it. And thanks for, for pushing. Great. Thank you very much. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.